And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 2nd, 2022. Michael Thiel's pioneering approach to apiculture and honeybee conservation has appeared in national and international magazines books, and films. He has presented his work at Harvard University and New York University, consulted for the USDA, and in 2006 developed the organization Gaia Bees to advance biodynamic practices in apiculture. In 2017, he founded Apis Arborea to preserve the life and resiliency of honeybees through wilding, that is the restoration of natural nesting habitat and the use of a holistic, ecological, and science-based framework in working with bees. He offers workshops and training in the U.S. and internationally. Michael was born and educated in Germany. He lives with his family and an affinity of bees in the oak woodlands of Northern California. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Michael. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. So I found out about you in an issue of Made Local magazine that came out of Sonoma. I thought the writer, Ursa Bourne, did a terrific job. And I'm just going to jump into the very last paragraph of that article, because I think it really sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. You say, um, just using the writer's words that quoted you directly, I think honeybees are messengers of hope. They are such an inspiration for us, for humans, culturally, spiritually, economically, ecologically. Think about a bee hatching in utter darkness, walking on comb, and then her big day comes when she steps in front of the entrance and spreads her wings and flies into the unknown. And she isn't doing this with worry and doubt and fear, but with determination, not for her own well-being, but to serve. Honeybees do serve each other and the world, and that is just the utmost expression of hope, of never giving up. Thank you for that. I mean, that is uh, words that we can all seek out and feel good about. And I thought we'd just pick it up from that starting point and talk a little bit about your notions specifically of not just backyard hives for honey, but this whole idea of wilding. Yeah, thank you, Hall, for quoting that. Well, wilding really is 
the central theme, the main pillar of our work, and not only of our work, but I think as a principle, it is emerging as a very powerful tool in conservation all over the world in different contexts. It may have had an early start in Yellowstone when they started rewilding Yellowstone by introducing apex predators, right? They introduced wolves. And what happened eventually is that the riparian area re-emerged. How about that? You just introduce wolves and all of a sudden growth is happening and the whole landscape is shifting. And that's a very beautiful example of wilding. We can call it rewilding in the case of wolves, but if we talk about it as a principle, then we call it wilding. And wilding is an approach that is very complex that also includes a lot of unknown factors that finally lead to the rehabilitation of damaged ecosystems, whether that is about plants or animals or both. Wilding, what does wilding stand for? It's a principle that fully entrusts natural selection. It fully hands over the steering wheel to complexities that we as humans cannot control. So we are in some ways through wilding and trusting the wisdom of ecosystems of all species to rebalance themselves. And also rewilding describes self-willed ecological processes, one could say. And in the case of honeybees, what wilding also stands for is, it stands for reconnecting with those wild conditions within which honeybees have thrived for, for millions of years. And to put it into a contemporary context in regards to what is called beekeeping, maybe you have seen last week uh, the news broke that Canada lost just last winter, 21-22, of all honeybee hives, of all managed honeybee hives. There are numbers published here in the U.S. every uh, spring. I haven't seen them yet. They're late, running late, I think, this year. But last year's number for the U.S. was 44.5%. Imagine there are about is it 2.8 million or 1.8 million hives, registered hives in this country, and basically half of them, poof, are gone every year. Every year, basically half of all the hive, hives are gone. And that article uh, I was just referring to uh, about the Canadian die-off, was trying to explain why. And it's this famous credo, this famous way of putting it when it comes to causes. And they say it is the varroa mite. The varroa mite is this ectoparasite that got introduced into the Western Hemisphere in the 1980s or so. And the varroa mite lived with the Asian honeybee, Apis serrana, forever together, they knew each other, they had a balanced relationship, and one could almost say mutually, a mutually beneficial relationship. Once the varroa mite was introduced into the Western Hemisphere, Apis mellifera, the Western honeybee, 
had never encountered the viral mite. And therefore, that is typically when host and parasite, a novel parasite meets a new host, it's a devastating initial encounter, which needs time for it to rebalance and sort things out. I, I'm still talking about wilding, right? And why wilding is so powerful and such an essential tool. So what happens is in Canada, 46% of bees have all died. And they say because of the varroa mite. And the life expectancy of managed hives is extremely low, maybe two years before they're all dead. Well, when we go and shift our awareness, our focus, and we go into the forest, into remote landscapes, and we will look at unmanaged wild honeybees living in trees, we will find that the average life expectancy is over six years. And not only that, but those wild unmanaged bees, those honeybees that are, mm. I would say, are protected from the influence of beekeeping, are thriving with Varroa. So here, what we can witness is the effects of natural selection. There are many studies that show at the time of this initial encounter between novel host and parasite, the honeybee populations suffer tremendously and they have this, this collapse of populations. But then very quickly, the surviving, the survivors had traits that worked quite well. And eventually the population rebounds and reaches pre-varroa level. And now those populations live with varroa. And that's what I would call wilding, right? The wisdom of self-willed ecological processes that leads to a rehabilitation of challenged conditions and uh, a, a degradation of health. When you said those numbers, I, I thought to myself, what if that happened to humans? What would our response be? Our response would be absolute outrage and hysteria. And yet we don't have that same feeling towards our bees, although scientists obviously do, but the general public doesn't. And this is where we need to understand that wilding or I would say hands-off approach allows the system to recoup itself and as you say, rebalance itself so that this parasite can reach an equilibrium also so that the bee population can survive. And it's happening even with our, right now we had a big infestation of spotted lanternfly in Philadelphia and everybody was hysterical because this insect came in and cleaned out the tree of heaven. But now we're noticing birds are starting to eat it and it's not in great, as great a number as it was before. We have to watch, you know, I, I just noticed this year on my, my Dawn Redwood that, you know, I was wondering what the heck are the birds picking off of it? And I go out and I see, oh, these are the little nymphs of the spotted lanternfly and the birds are eating them. Oh, okay, I get it. The birds are trying to balance out the number of insects. And that this is another example of what, what you're talking about by letting us 
letting, letting them be and do their thing, they can come up with a balance. Exactly. And then also by studying wild conditions, we have this tremendous opportunity to learn from those dynamics and see what is it we need to integrate into our on contemporary way of being with bees in apiaries. What can we learn and what changes are necessary? That is a very powerful way of uh, looking into the future. And that's another example of hope, right? We see that honeybees in the wild that are protected from beekeeping practices are thriving and that bees that are managed in commercial ways are dying at incomprehensible numbers. And also what is really clear is that it is not the varroa mite, it is not the so-called parasite that is causing the death. It is the management techniques, the practices that are really the root cause of this. Because we can see, we have so much data and studies that show that the wild honeybees live with varroa in an extremely successful way. So it is a misleading statement. It's kind of almost marketing, but it's almost a marketing technique of the industry to divert the attention from their practices onto something that can be blamed and also that can be the whole chemical industry is happy about this marketing approach because now they can sell pesticides to kill the mite in the hives. This might be a good, you used a, a phrase, you know, let's observe and learn. And jumping back to the, the article, the, the pictures that caught my eye as an arborist is that you are decked out in safety gear. You are operating a very large steel chainsaw and you're doing some uh, carving or construction, I guess is the right word, of uh, what you call an arboreal nest. Can you tell us what the arboreal nest is? And I have to say, I'm very excited about it because tree companies around the world always have wood. They have skilled people climbing trees. It seems like a marriage that, uh, well, let's just say it, made in heaven. That is so true, Hal. First of all, it is so much fun climbing trees. I love doing this. And I think a lot of people who work in, in your industry probably would say the same thing. And safety is key. Safety is very important. And yeah. so, yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. And yes, there's so much overlap. I partially source my wood from arborists when they take trees down. That is a beautiful overlap and collaboration. They don't have to haul it away. I pick it up myself. And But what are those arboreal nests you were asking? Yes. Linking back to wilding. From wilding, we can learn about the conditions in which honeybees thrive. And that's what we are doing with those, what we, we call them actually tree nests. One word with a capital T and capital N. So those tree nests, what that is about is about biomimicry. We look at how have bees lived for millions of years? What are the nest conditions? Where are the nests located? What's the size of the nest volume? How well are they insulated? All those things. And then we integrate those into our tree nest design. It's in some ways extremely simple. 
we mimic, we copy where bees had lived for, for many, many millions of years. And how that looks like is, so, and I, maybe I share a few parameters here. Yes. So insulation is very important. So the nest walls are about five inches thick. I'll take a tree trunk that is at least 18 inches in diameter and 40 inches long. And like you mentioned, I use a chainsaw to hollow them out. Um, I was very afraid of chainsaws, by the way. <laughs> that took me a long time to get used to them. Yeah. And then with other hand tools, it gets hollowed out. Then a roof structure is put on top that is very well insulated with a cork layer to provide warmth and insulation. The same is happening with a removable floor structure. And then small entrances are set, and that is it. So there's nothing inside except the wood, right? And then honeybees have a preference and affinity to height. If they have choices, their last choice would be to live on ground level. Mm. But that's where the beekeeping industry is putting all the hives only, but that they would never choose to live there unless there are no other choices. So we hoist them up. We uh, have a, a, a very fun pulley system where we pull them up into trees and they pull, they're installed between 16 and 20 feet above ground level. And we use just simple, wide ratchet straps to hold those tree nests that are vertically installed against a tree trunk. And those ratchet straps will have to be monitored and checked on a yearly basis because, you know, of tree growth. And also we want to make sure the integrity of, of the ratchet straps is still okay. So we don't want anything to fall out of trees. But that, that is kind of in a nutshell what we do. And maybe with one more addition, which is that we are not moving bees anymore. If you're familiar with owl boxes in vineyards, they never come with the owl, right? They are being put out in the vineyard or wherever, and eventually owls come, and we do the same thing. We, we install the tree nests, and then we wait until honeybees find it. And that is one way of empowering local honeybees. So when you have a swarm in a, in a domestic hive, they can actually seek out these, these nests that are high up. Exactly. Because their natural affinity is to, to go upward yes. rather than to go downward or be on the same. And I would think that a lot of it has to do with who they're coming in contact with at a lower level, like humans, for example, like other animals. The bees choose a place where they're up away, up and out of sight from whoever. And I don't think people really think about how our, our meteorological wind moves through uh, areas. But I think, and this is my own feeling, that I know that at different times of the year when the wind changes, it changes because it's helping with pollination on, on wind-pollinated trees and other times it will go at a different height because it doesn't have to pollinate anymore. It'll go higher up rather than lower or at tree height. And I, and I think about all that when I think about plants in particular and trees, but also when you put these bees up into these locations or the bees find these locations, they have a, a better perception of where um, additional places are to go for pollinating. 
especially in a woodland, I would imagine. Yeah, I think you're pointing at many different uh, possibilities that contribute to their preferences of height. It is a very novel feel, and there's still so much to discover and explore. Just to add to that, there are other considerations. For example, uh, the biome, the composition of the biome on ground level is very different from that at 10, 20 feet above ground level, right? And you have a lot of fungi on ground level, decomposing forces that are not present so high in trees, for example. There's also, it, it quickly becomes very complex, like there's a relationship between woodpeckers and honeybees because woodpeckers can be also cavity drivers, primary cavity creators in conjunction with fungi and, and other beasts and bacteria the whole process, how tree cavities emerge over time. So anyway, lots of reasons why that is the case, many of which I think are not really yet completely identified. And just to add to that in terms of novel fields of study and research, it is good to remember that since the 1850s and the emergence of the current bee box, scientific research has been done in bee boxes. And someone told me this, uh, shared with me this metaphor of if one wanted to study tigers and one would go into the zoo, it would be quite scary uh, to think that the, whatever the findings would become the foundation of animal care for tigers and our understanding of who tigers are. And that describes what happened in the bee world, that up to this day, uh, research is being performed in apiaries, in bee boxes, in artificial nest environments. Mm -hmm. And very few people broke out and decided to go back to where tigers live, or in our case, where bees live in the wild, in, in trees. And that has started a completely new branch of entomological research, that of wild Apis mellifera, of wild honeybees. And the data coming out is fascinating. And so it is still a novel field, and um, still we need more data to more understand clearly why is that, that preference for height? A scenario I'm thinking of, you know, how America is laid out, urban neighborhoods, suburban neighborhoods, uh, uh, vast corporate parks and stuff like that. And if I'm following you from a design schematic, if you will, uh, my neighborhood, you know, is fairly well covered in terms of canopy. And if the neighbors got together and say, 10% of the home homeowners signed up and said, yeah, we want an arboreal nest. That would kind of intensify the initiative, right? In terms of the end result of building population. Absolutely, Hal. That is such a beautiful idea you're sharing here. And a very powerful one. There are always things we can do locally, whatever it is about. And when it comes to honeybees and to rehabilitate their health and their life conditions, that is one powerful way of moving forward is to collaborate, to come together and do exactly what you said. One of those other parameters of wild honeybee populations is 
something called nest density. They would never live next to each other. They would never congregate like a hundred in one backyard, of course. That's such a human artificial. It's like the equivalent of a what is called a concentrated animal feedlot, right? For cows and pigs and chickens. Mm. It's really... So anyway, what, what is the natural distance between nests, honeybee nests? And we see, we have a, a research project right now going on here in California in a remote landscape. And what we see is currently it's at least 300 yards are they spaced. Okay. And so you're saying your neighborhood, well, put a map down, draw circles and start spacing them in, in that kind of manner. It can be further, it can be 700 yards. I would say the minimum distance I would I would maintain is three to four hundred yards, and then space them like this, uh, and that would be a very powerful step. You also have to consider that there need to be older trees in that community to be able to support these large hives that are being put in there, um, because in a community where you have all new trees or it's a new development and they've clear cut everything, that's when you have a serious problem where you can't put these hives up, or that might be a way to get developers to keep some of their old trees oh. so that they can actually create a hive up there for the the new community that's just moved in that wants to have better plants, have gardens, etc. True. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful thought, Eva. And also some people use tripods. Uh, to set them up on tripods that are quite tall. So then then the, the bottom mm -hmm. of that vertical tree nest is about at seven feet above ground level. It is possible to do it like that. But yeah, sometimes it is not so easy to find uh, a suitable tree because that tree trunk diameter should be, I would say, at the very least 10 inches or even 12 inches or so. I mean, the treeness itself weighs, I would say, under 150 pounds, depending on the wood one chooses. I'm sorry, how much? I would say under 150 pounds, depending okay. on the tree species used. That would not right. be true for oak. <laughs> but we yeah, never no. use oak. Right. I mean, we really use only light wood, right? Uh, red sequoia, sempervirens, redwood, fir and pine. Those are the main choices currently. I was going to say tilia might be a good one too because it's a light wood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do they need to be mounted in, uh, would they tolerate part sun, part shade? I'm assuming not full sun. Yeah, um, that's a really beautiful question, Hall. They definitely are drawn to um, an environment that is within the canopies of trees. And okay. that sometimes means partial sun. However, it also depends on the climate zone, right? What is, what is your peak temperature range during the summer, for example? And here in California, I'm in coastal California, where it's quite different from being 50 miles inland. It just shifts dramatically towards triple digit temperatures. And I do look, when I install them, in that kind of environment, in a very hot envi summer environment, I do look at it in ways where I want to I make sure there's shade on the tree trunk 
after 1 p.m. or so. Gotcha. So if these bees are finding their home once you set it up there, do you think that they actually assess the location for themselves to see if there's enough sun or air movement or, or are you doing the assessment or the pre-assessment for them? Because, you know, they're not going to come unless you build it right. And you must be building it right in order for them to come, right? It's like build it and they will come. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, they, they are studies where one, one really very well-known entomologist, his name is Thomas Seeley, S-E-E-L-E-Y, from Cornell. He did a lot of studies where he gave them choices and to determine what is it they're like. And that data, of course, we integrated into our nest design. But it's not only the design, it is the setup and then the wider conditions. Mostly, it is very fast. The time of procreation for honeybees is mainly in the spring and early summer months. Unless you go to Florida, where warm season is almost going the entire year, or Southern California. So during that time, we see that honeybees uh, populate those tree nests. And it often takes, I have seen like within two days they were populated or two weeks. It's very, very fast. But sometimes it takes years. And that is then not really about the tree nest design but about the conditions of the, of the landscape, the surrounding landscape. Uh, and that is a very interesting field, so much to research and explore. But just to give you one example, we, ha we have been talking about preferences, right? And what has the highest preference for honeybees? Well, that in this context are naturally occurring cavities and trees that had been populated by honeybees before. So when they can choose between a brand new tree nest I just installed and that kind of cavity, it's very clear they go to that tree because it has still comb in it, it has still propolis and tree resin accumulated in it. It has such a strong draw that this will take definitely priority. And sometimes it takes a while. And the other thing is, that if they populate very quickly, it can also mean that, that the availability of any sort of tree cavity is extremely low. So it goes very fast. And other causes and conditions, I don't know yet. I have, just to give you two examples, in our research project that is 3,700 acres surrounded by 10,000 more of wildland we set up bee lining. So we are identifying and locating existing bee trees. We have found already around 20 so far. But we, when we installed the tree nest, I thought, oh, they may not pick this because this is a preserve. There's so much availability of tree nest cavities. Well, it was uh, two weeks. In, within two weeks, it was populated in the spring. And that puzzled me. I never expected that to happen. Well, now we found out that that area was logged about 18 years ago. So you see, like, mm. that brings up more questions. And then I have um, another setup of uh, tree nests that is in a quite wild area, and it has been now two years, that one particular one, that it hasn't been occupied. And I know there's a, a wild bee tree just about 800 yards away. So I don't know. It's a novel field. 
But what I do know, and maybe this is a good stopping point here about that, is that those tree nets also act like gauges. They gauge the quality and the conditions of the surrounding landscape. We may not be able fully to read that gauge yet, but there are things bubbling up. Very much like other types of indicators, like if you have a, a sassafras tree on the edge of a forest, you know that it's a pretty healthy forest because yes. sassafras only grows in these cleaner or healthier woodlands. Yes. So it becomes an indicator. And I was going to ask you, how did you actually get started in this that you you had the knowledge to be able to do this? Have you always been collaborating with other people? I'm just really fascinated about how you can build these boxes and the bees come. I mean, how how does all that work? Mm, yeah, it was definitely a process, and that's probably true for all of us, right? Eventually, we end up somewhere. But uh, what I can tell you is that I started as a beekeeper over 20 years ago. And from my very beginning, something didn't feel right about those square boxes. And I very quickly started exploring alternative hives. And then I worked a lot with straw-based hives and things like that. Then in 2007, I believe, I co-created a honeybee sanctuary where we were exploring even uh, to go further. And there was the impulse to fully rewild and, you know, rewild honeybees by giving them tree nests, hollowed out tree trunk. And that was a game changer, really a watershed moment. And Eva, once the first hollowed out log was populated, and I opened the door and I looked inside. In that moment, I realized that I had no idea about honeybees. I had no idea who honeybees were. And I was immediately, I saw that this was what I had to do next because it was so palpable that bees were fully empowered and finally back, had arrived back home. And here we could, I could link to birthrights and, and ethics that that was an environment where finally we could, they could enjoy those conditions that they have a right to exist in and that it's ethical and morally an obligation for us as humans to provide those conditions and to grant and to acknowledge and respect so that was the game changer. And from 2007 on, I still worked uh, on my own or, and, and also in the context of the Honeybee Sanctuary. And then I realized I had to organize and I wanted to work in a group and uh, I didn't want to do it by myself anymore. And that led to the creation of our nonprofit, Apis Arborea. As you probably noticed at this point, it's a play of words too, right? Apis mellifera is the, the official name for the honeybee in Latin. And there's the honey part in them. Apis meli, the meli is the honey. So in the name is the commodity. And I wanted to shift focus to nest conditions. So I, I renamed the honeybee. <laughs> Apis arborea, the one who lives in trees, you know. And so this is now where I am working in this nonprofit. And I'm 
very grateful for the support we are getting and for so much great programming coming out of it and to collaborate not only within the team but with other organizations we have uh, contacts to universities and uh, Xerxes and many different I just want to make a couple quick talking points before we wrap up. One of which, again, for the arborists listening in, an encouragement to play with wood on rainy days, get out your chainsaw, carve away, look for the diagrams. But also there's an abundance of wood that comes from pruning and removals that's ready to go. It's already hollowed out beautifully, right? By years and years of internal fungal work. So there's a resource. There's an abundance of product out there. And I think if the tree care industry hybridizes itself with what you're trying to do, there could really be some significant growth. You know, people that climb trees, prune, plant, they're engaged with nature. And I think this is a, a real natural fit. Absolutely, Hal. And, you know, we are so happy to pass on the techniques and the knowledge we have, like you mentioned, we have a diagram of how we build tree nests on our website for anyone to take and run with it. We also offer online tutorials. It's just a three-hour meeting. I think one is coming up this fall where we go over the way to construct mm. them and also go into variations. You know, if let's say you have only minimal access to tools, what would be your options in that case and such? Right. The, the hard question when I look around and seeing my carbon footprint and stuff, can we talk about the ethics of honey? I know I have a few jars down uh, in the kitchen. A couple jars are local and one is from a big box store that promoted its honey as being organic. And I thought, oh, great, I'm doing the right thing. Somehow I think I probably am not. You should not ask me about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can take my lumps. I'll take my lumps. I'm not even using these wax candles anymore because I know where the how where it comes from, how the beeswax is is you know treated, and with honey yeah. the same thing. Typically, people would answer your question by saying, "Go to the local farmers market, buy from your backyard beekeepers." That's definitely right. the better way to go because. Honey bought of shelves on supermarkets may actually not be honey. It may be sugar, right? Um, but that's a whole other story. So I would say go as small as you can. Ideally, you know the person yeah. who has bees. But like I said earlier, the moment I looked into that log hive for the very first time and saw them in their natural conditions. You know, you, we all have those moments in our lives, like never yeah. again can I do what I did in the past because of what, what I just experienced. Right. So, and I, I don't have honey. The only honey I have is from, from nests that have died. So I have okay. very little of that. I would say this, and that is when honeybees die in those unbelievable high numbers why don't we give them a break let's give the thinking and the concern for honey a break and instead of harvesting honey let's harvest health and invest into that and once we figure that out we can come back to honey but for now it may be good to give it a break 
So we're actually, well we're just being gluttons for honey and we're not giving the bees their chance. Wow. That's a lot to think about. Before we let you go, uh, what's, what is your favorite tree in Sonoma County or worldwide? I, I sense that you've been around the world a few times. You mean living trees? Living trees. Oh, yeah. So two trees. One is Sequoia Sempervirens. Redwoods are just so beautiful. It's just beautiful. And since I grew up in Europe, the other tree I really miss are beech trees, the European beech tree forests yeah. are just breathtaking and I love them. I grew up with them. I miss them. And those are my two trees. Wow. Great answers. This has been really a delight to have you on and to hear how you had your aha moment mm -hmm. when you opened the first hive. That is, it gives me goosebumps. Mm -hmm. And we both really appreciate the work that you're doing and bringing be consciousness to people. We need to be conscious of the other. And one of the things just before we leave that we have to always remember that we are part of nature, not the rulers of nature. And until we get that through our heads. So, so true. And we just don't understand. And our, the world has changed. We live now in a new geological epoch that is named after us, the Anthropocene. We have been changing right. the climate and everything invites us to think outside the box. We have to come up with new ways of being on this planet. Otherwise, there won't be no future for humans. Uh, and that's what we are trying to do at Apis Arborea too, to literally think outside the box. And I think we all know that that is in, sitting in front of us, that, that invitation to think outside of boxes. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to meet you yeah. both. Thank you very much. Good luck with all your efforts there. Yeah, thank you. Same with you too. And I would love to see Arborus to, to venture into that territory. <laughs> it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. That would be yeah. wonderful. Thanks All again. Right. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Oh, my God.